Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Okay, and tonight's topic, Scott, is... What is it? Oh yeah, yeah. we're doing yet another bloody show about magic. But I think we another show about magic? Well, we, we, we did Cthulhu Mythos spells a few weeks back, we did our favourite spells from, from non-Mythos games. People and... are already turning off now. Yeah. <laughs> some, so, some of us so. can't get enough of the magic in the Mythos. You, you, know, you know, the whole purpose of this is just so we can talk about a game. No, it isn't. <laughs> I'm going to beep that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we're going to talk about chapter 10 of the 7th Ed Rules, which will be about magic. Ooh. Not spells, magic. Yes, Foul not black spells. Sorcery. Foul black sorcery. Excellent, my favourite kind. Mm-hmm. Well, I think let's let's start off with a fairly broad thing first, um, not seventh ed specific. What exactly is magic in Call of Cthulhu? Should we start with how Lovecraft portrayed it? Yeah, I think so. There was a few mm. um, uh, the Vorish sign. Uh, we had um, Professor Armitage using um, the dust of what was it called? Ibn Ghazi. Ibn Ghazi, mm-hmm. yes, to reveal um, the, the, the creature in the Dunwich Horror. Yep, uh, which was a kind of form of magic there. He, he, he liveliest awfulness. We think of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Yep. There's the deep ones and uh, the shadow of Rinsmith using a. Tr- they do not. <laughs> Oh, there's, how there's the mic the whole... doesn't pick up the look of anger and hatred on Paul's face. <laughs> there's the whole thing there about how they call f***ish to their necks. They don't! Oh, what I've... else is there? I, I don't know, I'm stuck on a That's completely derailed me as well. Oh. <laughs> we're all sitting here just picturing sardines. <laughs> I, was, I was mainly thinking if I were a deep one. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. <laughs> Listeners may uh, find we're slightly slower tonight in our delivery. That's because it's pretty chilly in the shed. Pretty. Except for Scott, who uh, isn't bothered. No. No, I don't feel heat, don't feel cold. Uh, There's a reason you brought a microphone called a Yeti, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, I will get round to putting the picture of Paul and his funny hat up on the website. It's not a funny hat. <laughs> it's fucking hilarious. Let's <laughs> <laughs> make two outings now. This is pretty good. So, what else did Lovecraft have to say about magic in his stories? His protagonist didn't use magic very much. Did any of his his protagonists... Professor Armitage, of course, yeah. Yeah, but any of his kind of... Armitage seemed like a bit of a a kind of an NPC who sort of came along to fix things to me. (laughs) He was a very Um, Deus Ex Machina type device. You know, if he was in in a role-playing game, he wouldn't be a PC, would he? He'd be a... He, yeah. he, he'd be, well, he'd be the, the GM's PC from the previous game who comes yeah. in and saves the day. Yeah, yeah. Because you couldn't let a player have all that power. No, okay. Oh, uh, break the game. Yeah. So do any of Lovecraft's characters, uh, you know, kind of like the PC characters in his story, if you like, 
use any magical spells. No, it's mostly mm-hmm. mostly the NPCs. I, you know, for example, Asnath Wait in the thing on the doorstep, mm-hmm. you know, doing the mind exchange stuff. But yeah, on the on the whole, no, people don't. So, do we think, for example, mind exchange was that a spell or was that just kind of a, a power? Yeah, Can I mean, differentiate. Not really. No, I, you know. Um, Ephraim Waite, was it the the father, uh, was uh, described as um, a sorcerer. Now, whether that's just a name that people gave him because he could manipulate reality just through his innate knowledge of the Cthulhu mythos, or whether he had actually learnt these these ancient magics, you know, is up for debate. But yes, you know, uh, through through his possession of his daughter, and then you know, uh, from there on, he could do things that were you know obviously quite unnatural. I mean, I like to think that some of these things are more like powers that the the people have, power, kind of innate powers or powers they've developed, rather than a kind of a parceled up spell such as we might think of in D&D, where it's a, a very uh, discreet thing which would take a few minutes to cast or a few rounds to cast, and it has a, an immediate effect or a very defined effect. Some of these things just seemed like uh, like that mind exchange one it's perhaps just something that they kind of develop the power to do yes uh, whereas in the game it's kind of formalized into a spell yeah which i think is very much a product of the time uh when call of cthulhu was first written and the fact that its roots came from RuneQuest. yeah i don't know if if someone were you know doing the first ever lovecraftian game now it'd be interesting you know whether it would actually have a spell book at all hmm because it seems like there's very few spells in the uh, Cthulhu Mythos kind of universe. Mm. Right, sure. There are some wizards and sorcerers. But... And, and, and certainly, you know, in the Mythos stories that followed, yeah, there was a bit more of that. Yeah, the only example I keep thinking of, as I'm desperately trying to rack my brain for other ones, is one of the passages that stuck with me from, I think it's Delta Green Dark Theatres. I think it's the... Corn King, or whatever the story is called now, mm-hmm. um, describes a chocho that, that just waves his hand, and this, the whole village blows blows to bits. And it's, nice. it describes it as just this almost um, half-hearted wave of a hand, and just this eruption of fire behind him. Yeah, it definitely. Mm. Seems that's there is to a degree you could think of that as maybe being a part of a component of a spell being cast. But if it mm. is a spell, then it's a very very quick and informal one for a, a massive effect like that, given. Comparatively, the lengths that you have to go to for with other spells. Yeah. yeah. I suppose mechanically in the game, it would probably be listed as a spell, just because a spell is a way of encapsulating supernatural uh, abilities that the characters mm-hmm. have. A way yeah. of kind of formalising those and giving them a cost and a duration and, and all the things we kind of want um, mechanically to support the game. But it occurs to me, you know, as a keeper, I haven't actually run a game that involves any investigators having access to magic using magic for 25 years at least. I was going to say, I've not played in one of your games, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, it it probably probably, also makes a huge difference that I don't write campaigns. Yeah, yeah. Tend to tend to run one shots. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think the last uh, Call of Cthulhu campaign I ran was Masks of Nyarlathotep when it came out. When it came out, yes. Wow, <laughs> just a while just a while ago then. Did they not get any spells in that. 
Oh yeah, it's Eye of Light and Darkness. Access. Yeah. Oh well, that's kind of yeah, kind yeah. of key to the whole thing working yes. at the end of it, yeah. really. And that, yeah. That's what I meant about not for twenty-five years because yeah. that's when I, mm. I ran it almost thirty years ago. Plus, you had your eyes melted by one in the um, in the Kenyan chapter. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've talked about this before, but it, but it's still funny. <laughs> The characters having magic. So if we take it that the characters have some spells, what kind of spells, you know, should they have? Dominate. Are they likely to have? It's great. Dominate is a is a very powerful and effective spell. They just tell the cultist to shoot his mate. It works every time. <laughs> you, you see, I'm I'm not a big fan of utility spells in Call of Cthulhu. I, I you know, I, I think it's you know the fact that you know, I'm a long time sword and sorcery fan as well. But you know, I, I like the approach to ma- that magic is something fundamentally unnatural, an abomination, dangerous to use, um, and you know something that no sane or normal person would touch. And y- utility spells and and you know, dominate is almost one of those. Um, yeah, I think goes against that, you know, completely. That, you know, that there, you know, should be more of a sacrifice than a few points of sand and a few magic points, which you'll get back fairly soon anyway. You know, it, it, it should be something horrible to do. It should, you know, involve you know hideous blood magic and you know, abominable practices. Uh, I mean, you should you should feel dirty after casting it, not just think, oh, you know, this guy's a bit of a problem, I mean, a bit of a pain. Yeah, you know, let's let's just dominate him. Mm-hmm. Especially uh, when it takes something a few, a little more than a few words, I think is what you're getting at as well. There, yeah. rather, than, yeah. If it's perhaps you end up slaughter, uh, slaughtering, I don't know, uh, like as a virgin or a full moon, for example, and then getting the chance to do your one order of yeah. someone right do this thing, it might have a bit more of an impact. But just saying, well, you do this, cross, cross, cross. That, yeah, that's my cross gone off the sheet. And there's no, not really any cost to you aside from, like Scott said, a few magic points, which you know you get back after a while anyway, and a few points of sand. Mm. Yes, the the question of losing sanity to casting spells is is quite an interesting one. Um, the fact that you know you've got at maximum ninety nine sanity, and you're sacrificing sanity every time you cast spells. Yeah, and that that's you know as far as I'm concerned, the saving grace of magic in Call of Cthulhu, the fact that you know each time you use it, it is taking that toll on you. Now, if you're playing the kind of game where you know you're getting Sandra Bores back fairly regularly for you know, achieving stuff, then yeah, I I, I think that's you know, almost like gaming the system a bit, but. Um, yeah, I, I like the idea that it is, you know, just speeding up your degeneration and eventual destruction. Yeah, there are some spells that don't cost sanity. Healing. Not that many, though. Healing doesn't. Yeah, but uh, I'm sorry, but what the fuck is a healing spell doing in Call of Cthulhu? It's got the what's the uh, lulling you into a false sense of security? <laughs> this is not fucking D and I'm sorry for all the swearing, but I feel passionately about this. Is a healing spell in Seventh Head? I can't remember. Well, there is in six, Ed. Yeah, but that's not necessarily the same. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. So there I, was. Can remember, I can remember <laughs> yeah. seeing quite a few people asking on forums about, uh, you know, particularly people who are new, asking about where where are the healing spells, and you know, shouldn't there be more healing spells and so on? It's a very kind of um, um, sort of mentality that sort of comes from playing uh, games like Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. so on, where it is, like you said, a utility spell, uh, which allows you to get back up to full power quickly. Um, but if there's if you're going to be healing you know like you said there needs to be some kind of downside to this sort of thing mm. so I can imagine a spell and there are such spells that, that maybe bring someone back to life although the, the spells in Call of Cthulhu that bring you back to life 
you know, aren't that good. Yeah, they don't, awfulness quote they tend to come back wrong, which yes. is the, the good thing. Um, <laughs> but equally, I think a healing spell, if it, you, that, that should have some downside as well, really. Yeah, that, that you've got to suck the life out of someone else or yeah, you know, at least mutilate them. Or yourself. You sacrifice yes. your own hit points to give someone else back theirs. Yeah, yeah or that grievous wound that... Uh, you know, I, I've stitched up. Yeah, I, I've stitched up, and it's you, you've got the hit points back, but now it starts kind of, you know, growing kind of strange fungoid growths out of it. And, I'm looking. Uh, at, I'm looking at Scott and him grinning, remembering an, a mouth in my knee a long time ago. Yes, I, th- I think we mentioned that in an earlier episode. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, that, some that's kind of, exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Some kind of downside. I mean, if you're yeah. calling on, you know, Shubnigarath to, to to do the blessing to to actually get the healing going on. The, the, then, the, then yes, yeah, the, that new bit of flesh you grow over your wound, you know, might have its own agenda. I'm kind of thinking, you know, a cleric would be doing the healing, and they'd be they'd be channeling, you know, divine magic. So if you're a, a Cthulhu uh, healer, then surely you should be doing something similar and calling on the power of the gods. I was, I was yes. just thinking back when we did Tatters of the King. I called on Shubnigarath, and nothing bad happened to me. He's polishing his halo and trying to look as innocent Nothing as possible. bad happened to you. <laughs> it was just everyone around you, was it? Maybe. <laughs> like setting a dark young on another PC. You summoned a dark young and, and sicked it on some other PCs. <laughs> yeah, nothing bad happened to you, Matt. No, not at all. <laughs> Much like nothing bad happens to the cultists. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> hey, we survived the campaign, old hat. <laughs> anyway, so... Any more to say about what is magic in... Well, what, well I guess th- yes. there is that question. What, what In D&D... I mean, D&D is kind of the default, I think, when, mm. you, when you talk about these things. So we've got channeling the magic of the gods, um, sort of divine magic, and then we've kind of got innate magic that you're kind of... Well, what, what is that? Yeah, but I, I, I mean, the way I look at it in Call of Cthulhu is that, you know, through access to these alien minds and alien technology and alien ideas and so on, that in a lot of ways you're, you're sort of maybe learning some of the cheat codes for the universe um, or, or certainly you know, drawing on the innate power of things much more powerful than yourself and channeling them through you. Um, and, you know, th- th- this goes back to what I was saying about that should have a cost, um, yeah, and and sanity is a good cost there, but I think there should be others. I mean, you're you're, you're tapping into something, you know, foul, unspeakable, uh, ineffable, and in, you know, incredibly more powerful than you are. Uh, bring it through yourself. I mean, that that should change you. It may be the cultist mindset. Maybe I had a parallel way of looking at it, but without taking out um, taking out the dark and sinister aspect, because hey, everyone should be doing it. Yes. Um, is that magic represents a way by which you are essentially finding, as you refer to it, cheat codes of the universe, I kind of looked at it as being more you're manipulating laws of physics that man has not yet discovered. Um, But these are inherent parts of reality in themselves that it's just, for instance, you put together um, heat, fuel and oxygen, you can get fire. In the same way that you say, ear, ear, something or other will pull down the power of a god, or you say the right words in the right context, again, just open up another effect because that's how the, the universe works. It's yeah. just to say that it's is that necessarily wrong? In inverted commas, oh, it kind of lucky ball should be. It kind of according to your puny my human mindset, maybe. <laughs> but it kind of inherently is the game is kind of saying it is wrong because it's costing you sanity. Yes. If it wasn't mm-hmm. wrong, why would it be costing you sanity? I mean, mm-hmm. to use the word wrong, it's kind of implying that um, 
you're exposing your human nature to something which is corrupting it and breaking it. It's just showing you the way the world really is. And as I say, from the cultist mindset. Yeah, I think um, you lose a few points of sanity and unless there's some kind of fictional thing, something in the fiction which sort of says and something bad is happening to you, uh, you know, there's some side effect that manifests in the story. Those, you just kind of cross off the few points of sanity. It doesn't really have any effect on me. No, it, feels, it feels quite anticlimactic, really. So, well, that's something we should explore then, perhaps uh, kind of side effects to, uh, you know, to using magic. Yeah, or, I think or something so. we should there, encourage. There, there are plenty of side, oh, again, side effects of when things go wrong with casting magic that mm. I found quite amusing. Oh, we'll, we'll get on to that yeah. in a moment, yes. <laughs> What's yeah. this face? Yeah. Yes. Should we get well, on to yeah. where you actually find out about these... Where you find the real magic, Scott? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, let's let's prove Jack Chick right. Um, <laughs> so, so obviously, the main place you find them is in books, musty old books yeah. full of really bad, bad things. Now that is something that is in Lovecraft's writing. Copiously, so Bra- Brian Lumley wrote some of these. <laughs> given, given your description, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I said bad, not inept. <laughs> I, I make no apologies. <laughs> so I got me the Necronomicon. What do I do? <laughs> I haven't played stop, Hills stop. Rise Wild for a long time. Yes. I remember you run away with it pretty bloody quick. <laughs> yeah, you run away from it. <laughs> Whilst everybody tries to hunt you down. <laughs> but the first thing you do is you stop doing accents because you tend to give people black eyes when you try. Oh. No, but but, that isn't an accent. That's just reading the text off that hand. <laughs> no, but Paul, Paul is incapable of doing accents in games without using Paul's his hands. <laughs> it's a part of the... You know, the experience. Yes, your Glaswegian accent involves an uppercut. If anyone's too close to hit the time, it's dangerous. I just want to say that's not racist. <laughs> I said an uppercut, not a headbutt. Okay. <laughs> Distinct difference. I'm anxious to change the subject now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yes, books. 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 Books full of bad things. As you say, you got you the Necronomicon. Yeah, so I sit down and read. Uh, I've got it now. It's about nine o'clock. I'm going up to my room to read the Necronomicon. I'll be up with the white coat and the padded cell. In exactly. Room. In a few hours, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Not in 58 weeks or whatever it is. Have you seen how long it takes me to read a book? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting, though. Yeah, um, Paul and I went to the ephemera shop in Newport Pagnell some time back. And I remember oh. pointing. I, I remember pointing out to you at the time there were some land documents from the 17th century there uh, that were written. For, I mean, for a start, they were handwritten, you know, in, in very old-fashioned script. Uh, it was quite spidery, very dense. The language was very dense, very archaic. And you know, I, I was sitting there trying to read one while I was waiting for you to go through all photographs. Mm. Um, and. Um, just passing one sentence of that, you know, took me you know, about a minute or so. And I, I, I remember you know, pointing this out to you at the time, saying, I finally understand why you have yeah. to read English novels. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, the, the point is that, yeah, I mean, a lot of old texts, for a variety of reasons, are difficult to read. Yeah. Uh, it could be that the ideas are very unfamiliar to you. It could be that the language is dense and archaic. It could just simply be that they're physically difficult to read because of the way they're laid out. Just how writing's th- that bad. Yeah, I mean, my handwriting's worse. <laughs> yeah, that definitely comes with a sanity loss. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I think all of these apply to something like the Necronomicon. 
you know, it's every page of that. I mean, it's going to be like reading Finnegan's Wake. Um, mm. Well, uh, maybe not that bad. But... Well, I was going to say, at least it has a coherent story. And, and there's yeah. less sand loss. Yeah. And words that don't take up three lines of bloody text. <laughs> yes. Mm. But in a lot of, um, if we look at a lot of scenarios, particularly, well, not even campaigns necessarily, um, but, but certainly one-offs, um, I get the book, and pretty much any book is going to take me weeks to, to read, mm. and it kind of makes them pretty much useless especially in most scenarios especially yeah. in things like masks where you get I know you definitely get a couple of books in there but there's, there's an inherent timeline in that game if you sat and read the book that's it the campaign's over Sea Voyage yeah, yeah. That, that's what Sea Voyages are for <laughs> that and learning to shoot a shotgun <laughs> off the off the back of the ship <laughs> um, but yes. I, I do think that um, and, and the initial reading um, which replaces skim reading in seventh head, initial readings of books allow you to uh, allow the keeper to uh, set the time frame for the book as he or she wishes. So, um, you know, if I decide, well, you know, you've picked up the Necronomicon even, and you know, I want to have some effect from it tonight, then you know, you, you've opened it and you've actually maybe you've just managed to pass a few sentences of it, Scott, and looked at a couple of illustrations and. Um, you know, that's enough to, to have some effect on you, mm. I would say. You know, come down ashen-faced and uh, shaking. So all the good stuff then. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So that does grant some um, um, <coughs> some lesser Cthulhu mythos gain and some sand loss. Yes, but, but yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, it suddenly makes it have an impact on most games where yeah as as you said with the necronomicon if it's 58 weeks or whatever yeah no campaign's going to run that long yeah yes yeah otherwise picking up the necronomicon just means you've got yourself a very musty old valuable paperweight mm-hmm. so we've got uh, an initial reading which can take whatever the keeper kind of decides really whether it's you know that one evening i.e. a few hours or a few days, or a few weeks, whatever the, the keeper decides how long it, that would take to kind of get the initial effect. Um, followed by that, you've got the, a full study of the book. Um, and a full study is generally kind of what's stated in previous editions, you know, that, that number of weeks for a full study. And I've always kind of thought that a full study is more than just reading it cover to cover. It's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, I got my tome, I read it cover to cover, and it, I always thought of it as like reading an academic book for a, for a study. You don't just yeah. read the book. No, you make You read notes. the book, you make yeah. notes, you uh, refer to other texts mm-hmm. and yeah. kind of cross-reference and, and, and all of that. You're making it sound a lot more like a university course now. Well, it's like a university <laughs> course. You're studying a, a book to, to get knowledge from it. Well, yeah, so, I, yeah. I did literature, so you know, I know I know the uh, feeling of spending many nights, lo- uh, many lonely nights up at the uh, university library uh, reading through, for instance, book one of Paradise Lost. And then going through all the contextual references, making sure what this uh, particular, uh, what one critic thinks this passage means versus another one, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So, so to understand a passage in that book, you've got to go to other books to mm-hmm. to get a to get a fuller understanding of it. It's a jigsaw puzzle, not a self-contained picture. Yeah. And one, I would think one piece that, in a larger puzzle. And I would think that um, the mythos books are the same, even if that's the only mythos book you've got. You can still refer to. You know, mundane books, history books, and yeah, uh, and, and so on, to, and things, other yeah. language books that you know that, that mesh in with it, and so on, to get the the full picture. 
Um, so as well as the initial reading and the, the full study, um, you, you don't then chuck the book away and say, right, I've got everything I can get from that. Uh, you can then do, if you so wish, and your and your campaign is kind of ongoing and you've got characters that are, that are, that are continuing to play. But you something's can gone it, wrong. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can do another full study, but it takes twice as long this time. So if it took you a year before, your next study is going to take you two years. And I kind of think that if it's a book like, you know, if we're talking Necronomicon or Cult de Gaulle or something, it's a very core text, and it's almost like a religious text. And you know, when I think of people studying the Bible, they don't just read the Bible once and that's it. They keep going back to it and reinterpreting it and deepening their knowledge of it over years and years, over their lives. Yeah, and, and I think those, these books are kind of parallel to that. And go to study groups and share ideas with other people and stuff like that. And There's probably a scenario with the Necronomicon study Oh group my God, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> You've heard, you heard it here, folks. Yeah. Someone's got that copyright already. So, so, Meet someone, those, someone. We'll get up and hug you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but so, so, someone, someone, Pulse. <laughs> <laughs> so, someone must have written that scenario already. Someone must have. Yeah. I'll edit that out, and we'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> if 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 you you've, if you've encountered that in a scenario somewhere, please let me know because if not, I'm going to write it. Yeah, you have a week. <laughs> get writing <laughs> oh, don't write that quickly now I mean the audience thinking if you want to capitalise on that idea quick oh, right. <laughs> no you've got a year or two with my backlog at the moment oh. so anything else to say about reading tomes um, I'm just glad that it finally doesn't take forever that's the main thing I like to go crazy I mean get my mythos quick and it just always takes far too long under the old rules I mean there's, there's, there are, there's still the timings of the old rules they've kind of remained pretty much unchanged but and and the old rules did say, you know, the keeper can play around with this and adjust the times as they wish. And still people just went to the chart and read off, you know, it took mm-hmm. 10 weeks, 20 weeks, whatever. And I guess people will still do that with the new rules. But I really tried to emphasise that every scenario is its own thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you decide that they can read the Necronomicon in a week, fine. Um, yeah, problem with that. yeah, it's your game. Which replicates Lovecraft's initial way of writing his stories for instance when we talked about rats in the walls that you have the author reference in one way in one story and in another one mm. yes and and let's face it yeah if you decide that your players can read the necronomicon in six weeks instead of 58 paul is not going to go around to your house and beat you up Shh. i can't, can't promise about mike but paul won't <laughs> <laughs> again well, you're lulling him with that false sense of security <laughs> again aren't you <laughs> yes and i looked i tried to find when i was reading some of the lovecraft stories any reference to how long it took to read books. And I don't think I've found one yet. No, because no one really seems to read them within the stories, do they? I mean, you've got characters who sort of mention they've men- they've read the Necronomicon mm. at some stage or the Cult of Gaul and make, you know, make reference to some of the contents. But I, I can't think of a single Lovecraft story where someone sits down and reads a book. I can think of a Delta, again, the same Delta Green one, actually, I mentioned with the reference to the Chocho. Um, one of the characters in that is literally forced to sit down and read a copy of The King in Yellow, and that takes him an evening. All right. And that's that's the only one I can think of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the King in Yellow is a special case because it's a play. No, but it still takes weeks, according to the book. Mm, according, yeah, again, according to, to, yeah, yeah. according to the original yeah. text, it's uh, yeah. for Sixth Ed, it's like a couple of weeks or more. Yeah, which oh. seems excessive. I mean, yeah, I can understand some of the older books... Um, you know, with with a really uh, hard to decipher writing and so on, um, could take a long time to to 
get through. But really, over a year, I think that's kind of stretching it. Hmm. Um, I mean, I tried to press... I've got a friend who um, is a, a, a historian, um, a doctor of history and art history, and I pressed her on, um, you know, how long would it take to uh, read some of these kind of heavy... Um, old academic texts and I kind of said you know what if one took sort of months and she kind of rolled her eyes and said well seemed to think that wasn't really going to happen um, <laughs> life's too short yeah I think so <laughs> no but I, I, I think you're onto something with comparing it to bible studies because you know that, that, that's that's not so much about you know just reading it as you know coming up with fresh interpretations of the text and you know analyzing it internalizing it and comparing translations as well. Yeah. Yeah, given again using the Necron Weekend example, how many different variations has that gone through over the mm. millennia? I mean, there's about five variations in the rule book, I think. Mm. Yeah. So the other thing you've uh, you've got um, related to the the books now is the mythos rating. Yeah, the mythos rating. Um, one of the concepts behind that being that. Each book has a mythos rating. Uh, generally, it kind of goes in line with the Cthulhu mythos points you get from it. So the more points you would get from it, the higher the rating it would have. Mm. Uh, but it kind of, comp- when you read it, if you already know quite a lot about the mythos, so you've got a high um, Cthulhu mythos skill, if you get one of the lesser tomes and your mythos skill is above the mythos rating of the book, then you don't get so much gain from it. You only get, you know, about kind of half the gain. Um, so, because you know a lot of that stuff already, it's not going, it's not delivering you anything new. So the Necronomicon, I think, has got a mythos rating of about 56 or something like that, 54. Mm. Um, so, you know, unless you've got a mythos, Cthulhu mythos skill above that, then you're still going to be getting the, you know, the whole experience. Uh, but if you're reading one of the, the minor tomes and you've got a Cthulhu Mythos skill of, you know, in the 20s or whatever, fairly high, um, then the minor tomes, you're not going to get so much from. Mm. I remember the good old days when I had about 47 points. <laughs> yeah. Yay. How about your character? Oh, that was a different story. Yeah. <laughs> and the Mythos rating also has a bearing on, you know, if you've got the book and you use it as a reference book. Mm. Um, so you want to find out, you know, some secret about uh, formless spawn or, or whatever to, to find perhaps some weakness or way of summoning them or, you know, whatever um, that, that sort of fits the scenario. Uh, then the mythos rating is a, is a key to, to that. And it's also good that you can go back and use them as the reference term rather than just you put it to one side. Oh, that's it. You've got all the information you're going to get from it. Nothing else is relevant. I like that you can go back and use it with that additional content. Because, yeah, again, that is how you tend to use big, hefty books anyway. Yeah, hmm. yeah I, I, my, my bookshelves are full of books that I've already read, but I do go back and refer to them sometimes hmm. because I don't carry all that stuff in my head. Indeed. Yeah, because all too often in the game they seem to be some kind of disposable thing. It was kind of like... Um, you know, I'll plug it into my brain for a bit, get the boost, and then chuck it away. Yeah. I need to know how to fly a helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Done. There's, there's, a, there's a scenario there as well, isn't there? Matrix mythos tomes. Yeah. yeah. Of course, the other thing you can do from, from mythos texts is learn spells. Oh, uh, yes. Which we've sort of covered in our discussion of um, magic earlier. Um, not spells earlier, not magic. 
This is magic. Yes. Well, they, 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 they're sort of the same thing. Muddying the water even more, yay. <laughs> <laughs> sure, you don't want to muddy the water so much, you won't be able to see whether you've attracted the fish. <laughs> Spells. You I'll set them up, you knock them down. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, if you're interested in um, learning our views on that and how you learn spells and so on, I think we discussed all that in episode 16. Or maybe it was episode 13. Oh, you sounded done. so good then, you knew what number it was. We've done that many? Yeah, the, 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 this is probably going to be episode 21. Oh, boy. So learning a spell from a book. <laughs> uh, you've got the book, and uh, once you've read it, the kind of initial reading, you've kind of got a, a contents list, really. You kind of know, you've got a, an overview of what's in there. Obviously, we talked about spells before. You don't necessarily know the spell is called Azathoth. It may just be called Summon Forth the, the Sun or something. Mm-hmm. Um, some more or less misle- misleading title. Um, well, that's half the fun seeing what it happens. really is um, and again the, the keeper is kind of given guidance on you know, if, if their scenario unfolds over three days then there's no point in giving them a spell that takes six weeks to learn mm-hmm. um, let the keeper kind of decide how long it takes and I think the default is something like I don't know a week or two um, 2d6 it's like literally the carrot dangled at the end of a stick in front of them that they will never reach yeah certainly sometimes that carries the stick of dynamite so uh, I think we've talked about this before, but we can learn spells from a book. We can learn spells from another person. So, you know, your buddy can teach you a spell. Or you can learn spells from a mythos entity. Mm-hmm. Or God. Share the love. Squirting it directly in your brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's going to hurt. Yes. Well, it should do. But yes, yeah. Then, then once you've got that spell, you can cast it. Mm-hmm. Or can you? <laughs> you can try I think I eventually ended up being used as the example in this, aren't I? <laughs> yeah. Yes, you did. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, you've never done it before. You've read this thing in this book, which you kind of figure is true. Um, and then you, um, you know, you get all your pentagrams and your... And your, all your equipment. Yeah. Go to a graveyard. Have a few white Russians. So hey, average, average Saturday night. Don't yeah. all, even a Thursday night when we're sat round in a pet pottery shed in a circle. <laughs> so you we cast it, and there is a there is a, a roll to see a, a hard power roll. So you need to roll under half your power to successfully cast this spell first time. Matt, roll it. Oh, uh, you know me and dice. You failed. <laughs> what a shock! <laughs> what are you going to do now? Oh, you know me. I'm going to push my luck because I'm stupid. I mean, uh, a proper wannabe cultist. So he pushes. Mm. Pushes the roll. Now you have a choice here. You could take the um, kind of the safe route. (laughs) (laughs) This is me. Okay, there is no safe route for you, Matt. Um, But you could take the safe. The safe route is to go back to the to to say, okay, that didn't work. I'm going to go back to the book and relearn the spell so I know it properly before I try again. Said no PC. Then there's there's no great risk then. (laughs) But we don't want you to do that. No, PCs are not known for their impulse control. This is what you could have won. Yes. So, uh, of course, you push the roll. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now you push the roll. Uh-huh. You know what? Your spell's going to work. Hey! See, I told you it would be worth it. But there could be a downside if you fail it. Well, that's not going to happen. Well, shit, he any, says, looking any, at his dice. Anyway, what, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, yeah, somewhere, somewhere between becoming an avatar and spontaneous combustion somewhere in the next 33 minutes using an unknown army. Well, we've got some... 
conveniently uh, eight options for the consequences of pushing a f- um, failing a pushed casting roll. Um, and and an, another eight for the more powerful spells. Oh, yes, there's the kind of lesser spells. These aren't really defined. It's up to the keeper. Is it a, a, like a massively important spell? Is it kind of summoning a god kind of type spell? Is it something like that? Yeah, it's one of the greatest spells. Is it just, you know, um, a dominate spell or something like that? Is it, if it's a lesser spell... It's Don't say it! There will be consequences. <laughs> now, I, I was just looking at one of the consequences here, which is small animals in the vicinity oh. explode. <laughs> <laughs> It's that side of white fish you've seen at the beginning of Crocodile Dundee. Just these little red bubbles going off in the water. You know, this this has become so tiresome that that Brett Kramer started complaining about us talking about on this blog, so sorry, Brett. (laughs) So for the lesser spells, the side effects, the consequences of failing a push roll range from blurred vision or temporary blindness. I have that at the gaming tables most night anyway. <laughs> through um, uh, disembodied screaming, so kind of atmospheric effects, strange visions and hallucinations, right up to some kind of mythos entity breaks through the reality to uh, like, see who's disturbing the peace. Like a, um, like a headstone exploding and a ghoul popping up between our legs was, exactly. the, was the example I remember. <laughs> Was that you, Matt? Yeah, that was me. You even used me as the example in the yeah. write-up. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if it's one of the more powerful spells... Well, then bad shit happens. Go on, Scott, what happens? Have you got it there? Yeah. Um, earth shaking, walls rent asunder, epic thunder and lightning. Not just ordinary thunder and lightning. No, lightning that's not good enough. Epic thunder and lightning. With an exclamation mark. Um, uh, yeah. One Blood by... falls from the sky. Yep. One of my favourites here, the caster's hand is withered and burnt. Powerful or numerous mythos entities appear. Not just one, lots of them. So yes, you've woken up every ghoul in the league. I've written in Baro here what Mike wouldn't let me keep in, which was (laughs) the default, really. Your head explodes. Oh, Cronenberg homage taken away. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so so I mean, when you get your copy of 7th edition at home, dear listener, get a Baro, yeah. And if you roll a nine on your D eight, then yeah. the character's head explodes. head explodes. I am not doing that with my temple edition. No fucking way. <laughs> <laughs> Number eight, mythos deity is accidentally called. Yeah, better than purposefully accidentally. <laughs> so you try to you try to summon a school of fish, and lo and behold, Cthulhu turns up. Oh well, <laughs> <laughs> barbecued fish. Well, that's what you would. Des- that's what will happen every time you use that. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you want it. To be. <laughs> Apparently, fish is now the uh, the nickname for Kasuga. Mm-hmm. I think that was the other example that was going through my head, but I couldn't resist a fish. It was mainly thinking you try to summon a fire vampire, and all of a sudden the sun falls out of the sky and lands on your head. Yeah, so uh, casting a spell has its risks, but you do kind of get to choose. So you fail the, the initial casting roll. It's up to you whether you want to, you know, take the risk or not. And also that that risk is kind of compounded because even. Aside from the side effects, casting the spell again, you kind of end up spending 
an amount of magic points that you don't really know quite how many you're going to be spending when you do that second roll. Oh, God, yeah. you don't so that can just it. suck it out of you. And, 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 yeah, this is different in 7th edition now, isn't it? In that, you know, um, you don't just fall unconscious when you run out of magic points. That the, the, you, know, you still successfully cast a spell, or still at least, you know, power the spell. Uh, but all that power's got to come from somewhere. So any, any shortfall in magic points is made up for in hit points. Blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As I remember all too well in my experiences, yes. <laughs> So you can end up killing yourself. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Which would have been quite appropriate with the head going pop. No, yeah. I mean, the, 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 this goes back to you know what I said about you know wanting the spells to be unnatural and dangerous. I mean, that's yeah, that, that is a good thing. That yeah, you know, particularly if you don't know how many magic points it's going to take. Yeah, you could end up withering parts of your body or yeah, you know, um, sucking the blood out of your system or. Yeah, I think um, particularly if, if I mean mechanically they're taking a few hit points of damage. Let's say. Um, it's up to the keeper to kind of think, okay, what was that spell? What went wrong to actually cause that damage? You know, is it, if it's, you know, it might just be weeping blood from the eyes or from the ears or something like that, but it could be something um, in the environment, like the, you know, the summoned ghoul going wrong and the gravestone exploding and the shards of stone from the gravestone actually piercing the body, causing the damage. Mm. So it's kind of a, you're um, kind of retrofitting the, 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 the fiction, what happens there to cause the damage after knowing how much damage is caused by the, the loss of uh, magic points and, and hit points. Which is kind of cool. Yeah, I just think it'd be quite a nice twist of irony that if someone exploded while trying to perform a healing spell, that would be a really <laughs> apt moment. Yes. And... <laughs> uh, um, once you've done this initial casting and you've you've made or completely bollocked up your rolls, um, you don't have to roll afterwards uh, for subsequent castings. Is that right? Unless it's an opposed spell. That's right. So once you've once you've cast it once, we don't want you. We don't want to overload the mechanics and have you rolling to cast it every time. Thank so God for um, that. once you once you've successfully done it, you know the the, the kind of. Um, the way is open for you to do it again in the future without is, without rolls, which is great for those of us that the dice really bloody hate. <laughs> so, but as you say, you've got the the opposed roll. So, if you're trying to affect someone um, to um, you know overcome their will or to uh, perhaps physically overcome them with a spell, um, then most of the time that's done with an opposed power roll, mm. which has another good advantage. Go on. Well, we're going to get to that, aren't we? Oh, the, oh yeah. yeah. You can mention it now and foreshadow it. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah dear listener, this is one thing that I always found is, so how do you increase your pal? Yes, oppose rolls, they are your friend, they are your chance to increase your magical power. Uh, oh, yeah, I always thought you got it by drilling a hole in someone's head and then sucking out all the cranial fluids, but... Well, that's another way of doing it, but... Mm. Yeah, this is this is a more pro, a more proactive use of flexing your magical muscle. Well, should we expand on that now? Yeah, yeah let's, well. let's move on to it. Uh, so, how sorcerers get that way? And this is always in the old rules. I think um, perhaps been revised slightly for, for seventh head. Um, we, we did mention this on a previous podcast, and I can't remember which episode. I think I think it might have been episode thirteen. So uh, essentially, if you if you're using a um, a spell that requires a, an opposed power roll uh, and you win it, then you get to make a second power roll. And if you, much like a skill check, if you fail that roll, then you get the boost of 1d10 points. 
simple hey, enough. Hey, yeah. hey, hey, juicy, juicy pal. Hey, and, and more importantly, it involves failing a roll, so... Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm perfect. <laughs> it's wonderful for me. I only have to spend the luck once. <laughs> uh, you can also get that reward for any luck roll of zero one. I was going to say, yeah, like whenever that, ha- that happens to me. And potentially as a gift from some mythos deity. Because <laughs> they're all about the gifts. Gift. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thulu, no. Hold on, you got a gift from Shubmigarath in that Tatters of the King. That's very true. And look where it ended up. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I can think of at least one scenario I've written that involves getting lots of gifts. Oh, yes. But we'll, we'll leave people to discover that. Ah, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm looking at you quizzically trying to remember which one's that. Uh, I can't remember. Yes, you have played it. Yeah, yeah. Sure is. Uh, is there anything else to say about the magic chapter? Any comments? Uh, well, the, the other thing that we haven't discussed that isn't there, which I, I think we discussed in the Sanity episode, was the becoming a believer bit. Oh, well, we were talking about um, reading tomes, so yeah. I guess it's pertinent here as well. Um, so I've got, I've got me the Necronomicon. <laughs> no hand gestures, you're learning. Yeah. And, well, why would I believe that? I can go to, you know, I, I, I got a copy of one of David Icke's books and I've read it and, you know, I'm not 100% convinced that I believe it all. Are you convert, comparing him to the Mad Arab? Well, why not? Don't, don't, don't force me to take my skin off and show you the reptilian underneath. <laughs> Um, so th- these books, you know, would you necessarily believe them? That's the thing, isn't it? So you could get the knowledge about it, just, you know, read, read, reading Lord of the Rings. I've got lots of knowledge about Middle Earth. Now, whether it's true or not, that's another matter. But I've still got the knowledge about it. Google Earth will tell you it's true. You try and type um, type uh, walking directions from going to Mordor, to, um, from the Shire to Mordor, and it will warn you that one does not easily just walk into Mordor. <laughs> so if it's on Google, it's obviously true. <laughs> Yeah, well, if it's on the internet, clearly that must be true. Um, so I, I can choose to disbelieve it. I get the knowledge of the Cthulhu Mythos gain from reading the tome. Now, in the, there was a, a kind of a rules in the old edition. The thing was, it required quite a bit of bookkeeping, though, um, of kind of writing down how how many Cthulhu Mythos points you should have got and how much sanity you should have lost, um, and then at some later point, kind of triggering that. So we wanted to kind of get away from that. And just so with with Seventh Head Rules, you read a tome, you get the Cthulhu Mythos knowledge. Uh, when it comes to actually deciding that you do believe in this stuff, you know, you meet your first deep one or whatever. Hobbit. Something that you're actually going to survive. Uh, <laughs> um, then, then, you know, you flip into becoming a believer. And oh, my God, it's all true. Uh, to, to keep things simple, you just lose an amount of sand equal to your Cthulhu Mythos skill at that point. Which is going to hurt if you read their Necronomicon. Sure is. Oh, mm-hmm. boy. So potentially you could have read a few t- tomes um, and have a stack of Cthulhu Mythos knowledge. Not have lost any sanity because none of it's, you know, it's all just made up stuff. And then suddenly there you are at the Green Dragon in uh, Bree and you realise it's all true. <laughs> You say that, and I just keep thinking of cheese. I've got this barrier that's. I got the wrong yeah. pub, didn't I? It's the Prancing Pony. It is. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can't take Green Dragons in Hobbiton. Yeah, <laughs> as I'm thinking. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, I, uh, thinking about uh, the Mountains of Madness, for example, um, one of the protagonists in that had read the Necronomicon mm. and sort of comes across evidence in uh, the Mountains of Madness that it's all true. And I don't remember him particularly losing his shit until you know, he, he was running away from a shot with screaming. As he would do without having read a book. But he does kind of... Um, some of the comments he made, he doesn't kind of flip out, but he does kind of imply the kind of horror of, of realising that stuff was true. That's true. I say, Professor Armitage has read the Necronomic, and he's probably read a hell of a lot more besides that. You don't see him flip out in Dunwich Horror, although that no, is more of a pulpy example. I, and, and also, yeah, I think he did actually believe it because he wouldn't have done the things that he'd done in... Um, That's a fair point, yeah. actually, yeah. The other thing that the, the chapter covers, which uh, we haven't really gone into, is non-mythos magic. Ah, oh, yes. But there is other stuff. Yeah. Or is there? Well, I mean... I... <laughs> I read this recently and I can't remember what it says in the chapter. Paul, remind me. Well, I wrote it a long time ago and I can't remember what it says. <laughs> I think it's pretty much, if your story suits it, put it in there. If it doesn't, yeah. forget it. It's pretty much it's a catch-all to say, if you want it, this is how you could potentially formulate it. Yeah. I think I'm, there's a I'm lot... I'm glad one of us was paying attention. See, I read it! I did my research! <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of issues, really, with, um, you know, setting a um, a game in... Uh, some other culture uh, or trying to draw upon some other uh, culture of, of, of magic, you know, the occult magic or pagan magic or, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, taking a, another civilization, you know, whether it be Aztec or, or whatever and saying, well, they had some, uh, they're, they're reported to have some magical rituals. We need to incorporate them. But if they're not mythos related in a Cthulhu game, how does that work? Yeah, I ran across pretty much exactly the same kind of thinking um, on a random side, or related side, not random. Um, I worked on one of the chapters for an upcoming Vampire Masquerade source book called Rites of the Blood, um, particularly dealing with necromancy uh, for Clan Giovanni, and then having a look at necromantic practices worldwide where the Giovanni family had gone. And necromancy, for one thing, in classical Western mythology is completely different from what you find when you get out, go out to the Far East or down mm-hmm. to Africa, for example. Oh, yeah. So magic is a very, very diverse beast in the world. Mm. Oh, absolutely, yes. But if we're kind of saying that if the Cthulhu mythos is the real uh, reality behind what we see, surely these other types of magic must somehow come from it. You, you mean I can't just cast a, a lesser pentagram ritual and protect myself from night gods? So I think when it came down to it, you know, it was up to the keeper in their game to decide, you know, in this scenario, um, you know, such and such works. And, um, you know, if you want to have in in one of your games, if you want to have priests have some, you know, let's say Christian priests have some power to repel um, mythos entities, fine. In in that one story... um, doesn't have to be you know the next game you run they might be totally powerless if it's in a different um you know a different continuity there are there are some instances where they do cross over in the because i've had a look through the magic section recently in the sixth ed book where a couple of the spells are marked as voodoo yes so that there is a certain cross inter- interweaving of the two myth myth i was gonna say mythos but that'd be a confusing issue 
Yeah, the two yeah, belief schools. systems. Yeah, that's that's a better way. But. Mm. Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of different ways of looking at that. One is yes, you can decide for your campaign that you know, for example, you know, voodoo uh, voodoo has practical, you know, uh, measurable effects in the real world, and it isn't just a religious practice. Uh, alternatively, you can say that there are certain spells which you know, have mythos components, which have been you know, brought down through the years, and that's what makes these little bits you know, efficacious. I think that's the route kind of Mike and I went down when we were doing the magic chapter was that we kind of took out some of those spells which were um, classified as voodoo spells or whatever. And, and I mean, some of them are still in there, um, but the ones that seem to come from other schools were kind of left to one side. Um, so really it's about the Cthulhu mythos spells and the Cthulhu mythos magic. And if you want to put other things in, then, you know, fine. And the other thing in the chapter, how many times have I said, and the other thing in the chapter? But the other thing in the chapter Just a few. is the spontaneous use of the mythos skill, which we covered extensively in episode 13. Is that in this chapter? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you've you've just rewritten that slightly, I know, because I went over it, because you've put examples in there now. Yeah, I think it was actually talking about it the other week on the podcast. Um, what's that called? The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. That's oh, it. yeah. We need shit. to mention that yeah. more to let yeah. people know about it. <laughs> Um, the uh, yeah, talking about it the other week, I kind of it, Penny kind of dropped. Actually, we could do with a few more examples in the text for keepers to kind of to get a better picture of what's kind of um, uh, sort of implied by that. So there's a few examples in there. Did you get, have you got the copy with the examples in, Matt? That's what I sent to you. So yes, you sent it, but I thought you was only sending what Paul had already sent me across. So no. I, I vaguely remember reading this part, but I'm not sure whether it had examples in it or not. <laughs> no, it didn't. Then no. probably no. no. It had about three examples kind yes. of added in, and they're, they're good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of suggesting. Well, what what is it? It's a spontaneous banishing ritual, for example. Yeah. So I know you know if I got twenty percent Cthulhu Mythos skill, and um, you know as a Bayaki, then can I? say the right words, send it away. We did this in Tatters of the King, I think. I think we did, yes. Yeah, I think your... I can't remember if it was your character. Somebody's character went in, in, the, in the complete darkness because it just it did um, the darkness power that it's got all spell just to make the room completely dark. Um, it was when it was sucking all the blood out of me, yes, I remember. Fumbling in there and, and you'd got some Cthulhu Mythos knowledge and you mm-hmm. said, can I kind of send it away? And you kind of commanded it to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was fairly... Because after, uh, you know, after it had tried, uh, bit, bitten me and was starting to suck all the blood out of me, yeah, then it was a you-shall-not-pass moment of the, to throw it away. Yeah, and you actually managed to persuade it to, to, to leave you alone. That was uh, pretty effective. One time when dice liked me. Yeah. <laughs> trying to evade the thing in the first place, trying to avoid it biting me, no. And these aren't really a get-out-of-jail-free type thing. I mean, I, I really like those bits where people use Cthulhu Mythos skill to have an impact on the game, and... Because it does feel like they're kind of crossing over to the to the dark side almost. Yeah, and 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 also because your Cthulhu Mythos skill is likely to be so low, yeah. You know, for a start, the chances of it working first time are pretty remote. That tempts you into pushing it, and of course, as soon as you start getting into pushing territory, you're risking making interesting things happen. And <laughs> yeah, you know, some really it, dark, interesting things, yeah. and at the player's behest. Exactly, yeah. The, the player's putting the kick-me sign on his or her own back. You yeah. brought this on yourselves. Yeah. Which, which, which is fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, you, you want them to do that. You want that second roll to go wrong, and you, you want to rain hell down on their heads. 
This is one thing that the microphone doesn't pick up, is a look of glee in the sadistic <laughs> face of our GM on the other side of the, of the mic. <laughs> oh. We're all keepers here. <laughs> These are the moments I live for. <laughs> Kicking them when they're down. Oh. <laughs> well, it's so much more convenient then. I mean, that's where my feet are. <laughs> that's what we should have called the Keeper's Advice chapter. Kicking them when they're down. <laughs> Oh, perfect. Well, I'll tell you what. One of the chapter headings, definitely. No, no, I mean, if we ever put out a Keeper's Companion, that, that's what it's going yeah. to <laughs> The spontaneous use of Cthulhu Mythos skill is under optional rules, so that's yeah. kind of up to you, much like spending luck. Um, but uh, you'd be crazy not to do it. Yes, yeah. Don't, don't think of it as the players breaking the game. Think of it as just giving them enough rope. <laughs> Yeah, or a shorter fuse. (laughs) So, what does this sparkling Roman candle do again? (laughs) I think we've said all there is to say about the magic chapter, and probably a fair bit more. Let's just remind everyone that we can be found on various social media outlets. Indeed, we're on Google Plus. We have a community called the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. We're on Facebook as the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. We're on YouTube as the good friends of Jackson Elias. I'm and we're an on, echo here. <laughs> and we're on Twitter as the good friends of J.E. Always Twitter breaking the fucking pattern. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and of course you can find us at blasphemoustomes.com In a godless universe, in a Cthulhu universe, can they be blasphemous? Well, that's our topic for next week. There's a deep philosophical I'll question. wriggle out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think we'll leave that for the listeners to ponder. When you're lying awake at three o'clock in the morning trying to work that one out, blame Paul. Good night. Cheerio. And farewell.